Hello out there, and thanks for joining me. I'm Dan Roberts, and today we are going to give some of the things I wish I had known when I was first starting out one more think. So this episode is actually coming to you by request. Some friends of mine who are new to the field of therapy asked me to put together a collection of some of my thoughts now that I have more than 15 years in the profession to talk about some of the things I wish I would have known when I was first starting out. And when I look back, there's quite a few of them. So I have five major things that I wish I would have known. And then there's kind of a handful of bonus things. I guess in the end, I'm happy that I learned the lessons that I learned the way I learned them, but I definitely learned some of them the hard way. So I'm going to start out with a couple cautionary tales. The first of those cautionary tales is about myself, and it leads into the first thing that I really wish I would have known when I started out. So, essentially, when I started out as a social worker, I brought my habits as a student with me into the profession. And while I'm a fairly good writer, I like to tell myself, and a pretty quick study, I am also have always been a pretty bad procrastinator. In college, I could get away with this because I could get up early the day a paper was due and make some edits or write some few pages and usually get away with it. I'm a fast typist and a decent writer. So while I didn't produce stellar work, it was good enough for college. But that habit of putting off the writing until the actual deadline really started to bite me in the butt very quickly as a therapist. Because as a therapist, documentation is the only real proof of the work that you did. And that was completely new to me. So in a nutshell, what I wish I had known starting out that I learned the hard way is that documentation is much more important than I ever gave it credit for in my own mind. And in my first job, this ended up costing me that job. I got behind on my documentation pretty chronically. And I simply couldn't get it into my head that writing notes mattered as much as it actually did. But after just a little under a year of that first job, I had been late in my documentation so often that I was released from that job. That blindsided me. Like, I knew it was important but I didn't understand that the timeliness was important. My documentation was always thorough, and I thought it was always pretty well written, but I didn't get it in when I was supposed to. Most, uh, I think, organizations are going to have a 72-hour max window for getting your documentation in, and I kept blowing that time gap. I'd write my notes sometimes a week after the session, and you know, I'm embarrassed to say that now, but at the time, I didn't recognize how big a problem that was. I already had the bad habits from college, or from my entire life, really. And when I came into the organization, I, I had some mentors and some friends who also were, along, were of the same habits and mindset as me. And so I guess I just didn't learn good habits for quite a while. I was... I want to say maybe four or five years into my career before I finally recognized how vitally important it is to get documentation done in a timely manner. Now, 
I get all my notes written before I leave that day. And I realize for some people that's very, very difficult. But I think what it boils down to is two things. First, you need to become good at writing. You need to have a good system that works for yourself. Some people I've worked with use dictation software. And that forces you to think and, and conceptualize cases in a different way so that you can speak your notes out loud. That's never something I've been good at. Other people just write very terse, kind of very abbreviated notes, which probably get the job done, but I don't like that style because when I come back and read my notes, they seem so impersonal and so dehumanizing that I have a hard time connecting with them again. So what I have found works for me is a practice called concurrent documentation. So what I have to do for that is I set up my desk so that I am facing my client over my keyboard or over just to the side of where I'm looking at my screen so that I can see them while looking at my computer. And this seems like it's a challenge in a lot of spaces, but it turns out furniture can be moved. And that's what I've had to do in all of my offices. I move my furniture and arrange my physical surroundings in such a way that I can see my client directly, look at them and keep eye contact and keep a conversation while I am typing their note in the middle of the session. And I know some people hate this. I originally hated it. It does feel a little bit disturbing to the conversation to type while talking, but it's actually not that bad is what I found. And by doing concurrent documentation, I was able to get a note finished almost at the same time that the session finishes, you know, just with a few tweaks or updates after the fact. And for those not in the field of therapy, this may not seem like this is that big of a deal, or it may seem kind of ancillary to therapy, but it's not. Anybody who's in the field knows that your notes are, as I already said, are the only evidence of your work that the rest of the world will ever see. Once you're out of a probationary period and you're not getting immediate supervision anymore, the people you work around, your bosses, your coworkers, the only thing they will ever see from your work, what happens behind closed doors in a session, will be what you write about it. So it's the only way you can really put your own best foot forward. It's the only foot you're putting forward at all, which makes the profession kind of strange, right? Um, doctors have nurses and, and medics and medical assistants who see their work firsthand. And surgeons always work in a team. Dentists have assistants and x-rays. I think therapy is pretty unique in that we work in this bubble where the evidence of your work is down to the subjective report of the patient, what they thought went on and how they thought it was, and then your own record. So it's vitally important. The other cautionary tale I want to tell is not about myself. I only had to get fired once to learn this lesson, but when I was in the army, I was uh, assigned to a peer review board, which is a disciplinary panel put together. I think there was five of us, five therapists of the similar licensure to a woman who had gotten in trouble also for documentation problems. In her case, her documentation was inaccurate. And she had gotten in the habit of copying forward documentation from previous notes. 
So without going into too much detail, over the course of six years, she had seen dozens and dozens of patients. And she had included the exact same verbatim diagnostic information for almost every one of them. In their physical complaints section, she had simply copied forward the physical complaints of a soldier that theoretically was a real person, but that soldier had right shoulder pain and a few other vague kind of physical complaints. But she copied that documentation word for word into every other patient's notes that I read. And I read six years worth of documentation while I was serving on this committee. Now that's easy to do. You get, you get in a hurry. Documentation's a hassle. And she probably got tired of writing a new physical assessment of all of these soldiers. When she's not a doctor, it's not her job to do an actual physical assessment of her patients. But there she was putting down statements about people on a document that has legally binding status that were simply untrue. And that became a massive problem. People, uh, the, the soldiers that she saw started running into real problems when they would get out of the army and have their disability assessments. People would read those notes and say, what's going on with this right shoulder pain? And then these soldiers had no idea what was even going on. And then turned around to find out that their own medical record contained lies about them. And I don't know to what degree the soldiers themselves complained about this. They certainly would have had a right to complain about it. But when I was in this committee and we all sat down and talked about how many times this same problem showed up in her documentation, we all came to the same conclusion, which was that it was an egregious breach of ethics. She was writing untrue things in a document that must be true. So I, in the end, we recommended that she receive disciplinary action. And then it was taken out of our hands. And whether she was fired or whether she was moved to a different area in the organization, I don't know. That wasn't our job. Our job was to review the documentation to see if it met standards of the profession. And hers simply did not. She might have been a fantastic therapist in the room. But she didn't do a good enough job of writing about it to convince any of us that she knew what she was doing. And that's a tragedy. And I think those habits are easy to fall into and will always come around to bite you sooner or later. So now I live by a simple rule. Your workday is not done until the notes you write are done. And that forces me to change some things about my own clinical life. It forces me to end my day with administrative time so that I can get all of those notes written. Another thing that I do with my documentation is I really try to avoid stylistic legalese in my notes. I try not to refer to my clients as client or patient. I refer to them in their own notes by their name. It seems dehumanizing to me to write the patient said or client said. I can just write Bob said. It means the same thing, but then in my note he remains Bob. Anybody who's reading Bob's note knows Bob's name. I don't need to hide his name. Uh, that's never made any sense to me. And as I work in the, in the field, it makes less and less sense to me. There's also a tendency to, to avoid first-person pronouns. I've never understood that one. And again, as I get older and grumpier, I just refuse to do it. I won't refer to myself as this writer or this provider or therapist 
I refer to myself as me, I. I write the notes from the first person, and if I'm right, and if there's any direct quotations from the patient, I write, Bob said, quote, whatever Bob said, unquote. It's not hard. That's the way the English language is written in all other contexts. And I, I would love it if somebody could point out to me the actual benefit of writing notes in that more formal style. I think the benefits of writing more familiarly, more normally, far outweigh any other benefit that might be gleaned from writing notes with that legalistic language. Now, maybe I'm wrong. I would love to learn and grow in that way, but nobody so far has been able to point it out to me why it's a better practice. So at the end of the day with documentation, as a therapist, we don't get into the field of therapy because we like to write about our patients. Nobody I know likes writing notes. We like to work with people. We like to connect with people on a deeply personal, powerful level. And it can very frequently feel disappointing and like a letdown to try to capture that ethereal experience of the session into something dry and legalistic like a document, writing notes. Notes never compared to the actual session in emotional evocativeness, the quality of the connection. They always feel flat. However, if you didn't write it down, it didn't happen. And that's simply the truth of being a therapist. So that's the first thing, documentation. The second thing that I wish I had known when I was first starting out is that there are going to be people in the profession you just won't like. And that doesn't mean that they're bad therapists. There's a handful of professionals I've worked with in the course of my career that I just couldn't get along with for all sorts of reasons. I didn't like their attitudes. They were interpersonally strange. I allowed myself, mistakenly, to be overly judgmental of what this must have meant about them as therapists because I forgot the narrowness of my own lens. I've learned the hard way, I guess, that my own ability to like or dislike a person is not a worthwhile metric for their skill as a therapist. When I became a supervisor and I had to look at all of the, my coworkers with a more egalitarian lens and be more objective, I was able to recognize that a lot of these personalities that I just didn't jive with were in many cases better therapists than I was. They had a different approach, a more unique way of seeing the patient conceptualizing the problems that the patients were having than I did. And I learned to my shock that their interpersonal style, though different than mine, and maybe even in conflict with mine, had a genuine value that I could really learn from if I let myself step away from my own personal preferences and actually see them as skilled practitioners rather than people that I would like to hang out with on the weekend. It is very important as a therapist to recognize your own bias. It is important that you can see that your biases influence not only how you see your patients, but how you see your coworkers. And I think that as you grow in the field, some of the things that feel automatic 
that don't feel like bias, that feel like absolute truth, will come to reveal themselves as actually being biased. And that's certainly what, it, what, what happened for me. You will find this particularly among your supervisors. And I think it is okay to realize that your supervisors have bias and that sometimes they will project that bias into the work you're all doing as if it's truth. And it remains incumbent upon the individual therapist to filter through that bias, to recognize it for what it is. I had a lot of, ther I had a lot of therapy professors, teachers, who were incredibly biased. And I didn't realize it at the time, but looking back, I definitely see so now that they weren't giving me the absolute truth. They were filtering the world and projecting it onto me through their own lens. And I was young and impressionable enough that I didn't recognize it at all and just felt that I must be wrong for disagreeing with them. But over time, as the years have passed, I've recognized that everyone has bias. So do I. I try to fight my own where I see it, but I also try to realize everybody that's talking to me has their own bias and that I need to digest it through that lens. That I need to take everything that people around me say, including supervisors, with a grain of salt. If they say jump, I have to jump and ask how high on the way up. That's the way of things. But I don't have to agree that jumping was correct. That's a nuanced difference. Took me a long time to get to. But ever since I've gotten to it, I've really, really benefited. I don't get wrapped around the axle when I disagree with someone. It doesn't become this intense problem I have to work out in my mind. It's just somebody else's opinion and they can have it and I disagree. And I may or may not have to do what they ask me to do, but I don't have to agree with them that it needed to be done. And that took me a long time to realize. I spent a lot of wasted energy trying to get along with everyone or thinking that getting along and agreeing with everyone was an important part of the job. So the next thing that I really wish I would have known better when I was first starting out is that the most important element to good therapy is a good relationship. Of course, it's good to be technically proficient, to have a lot of skills, to have abilities in specific interventions and do all that certification work and all that growth of actual skill. Obviously, that is important. But it is not as important as growing the skill of connecting with every patient that comes through your door. I'm naturally pretty good at this. I've always had the ability to have a conversation with just about anyone. But one of my mentors, about midway through my career, pulled me aside and showed, showed me some of the research about Therapeutic Alliance. And a few meta-analyses of Therapeutic Alliance show that regardless of the therapeutic intervention being used, the Therapeutic Alliance is the thing that accounts for therapy outcomes more than any other thing. In other words, no other element of the therapy accounts for as much of the growth and change that we see in therapy than the good and positive relationship between the therapist and the patient. It's supported by a ton of evidence and has been proven over and over again. So, as a young therapist, I was so focused on my skills, on following the manualized treatments, the evidence-based protocols, and making sure that I dotted all my I's and crossed all my T's. But as I've matured in the field, 
I realized that following those protocols is good when you don't know what else to do or when you're first starting out. But once you have a relationship with the patient, letting the relationship guide the therapy is the best therapy. So now as I do manualized or evidence-based protocols, I change them quite a bit and I'm comfortable with that. The, the publishers, the writers of the therapies might not like it, but I don't work for them. I work for the person sitting in the room with me. I'm not doing outcomes research where the, where the sessions need to be identical every time. I'm doing individual therapy, and my goal is to improve the health and wellness and functionality of the person sitting in the room with me. I have to let that relationship be the primary thing guiding all of my efforts. So there's a way that you can build this skill. It's actually quite fun. It's a little game or a challenge that I've played with some coworkers uh, from time to time. I'd like to challenge you to try it. The game goes like this. Every day, strike up a conversation with a complete stranger and find something to talk with them about so that the conversation ends up being warm, pleasant, and improving their day, leaving them with a better emotional state than they had when you just bumped into them. It's hard, but not impossible. And especially for those of us who tend towards conversational introvertedness, it can really stretch you. But this is what we need to be good at as therapists. We need to be able to engage anybody at any time. That's our job. You never know what's going to come into your office when you get an intake. You have no idea. Even if you're reading their notes ahead of time, you still don't know who they are as a person. They will come in and they will sit down and you must be able to engage them and create a relationship. And this obviously bumps in against our own biases and our own kind of closed circles. You will routinely have people come into your clinic who are from a different planet than you are. And you need to practice getting to know them, coming to learn their planet. Myself, as a heterosexual, white, Anglo-Saxon Protestant, I don't have an awful lot in common with a lesbian couple. But I've done therapy with multiple lesbian couples, working on couples issues and relationship dynamics. I'm not going to say that I was immediately comfortable with the first lesbian couple that came into my office. And I had to do some introspection and make sure that I was meeting them on their level. But as it turns out, I really like working with lesbian couples. They're just like straight couples, except they're both female. I didn't know that immediately, but I mean, it seems intuitive to me now. But the very first time I had a lesbian couple come in, I kind of panicked. Oh, I, know, I, I told myself, I don't know how to help these people. They're so different than I am. But they're not. Because they're still people. And any person can connect to another person if they try. The same is true every time I work with somebody who's black or Hispanic or somebody who has had a vastly different socioeconomic experience growing up. So I've challenged myself to be able to learn the skills required to connect with just about anybody. And it really did become a game that I would play with myself and get quite proud of myself for being able to play it well. You know, and maybe that's hubris and I'm setting myself up for a fall and I entirely expect that a case will come into my office within the next year that I am unprepared 
to accept and to help, which just means I still have learning to do. I still have growth to do. And I'm fine with that. As a young therapist, I thought I needed to be ready for everything that came into my door. As a more senior therapist, I feel more like I need to be ready for everyone that comes into my door. And I try to not have preconceived ideas of what they might bring in terms of problems or circumstances. Instead, I focus on the person and how do I connect with the person? Because in the end, that is what matters. And every circumstance or problem or diagnosis that you will ever see will always be framed within the context of a much larger whole person. And I really wish I would have known that earlier in my career. And it would have changed, I think, the trajectory of my learning arc as a therapist. The next thing that I wish I would have known is that eventually I would be the boss. And that happened in my career a lot sooner than I thought it would ever happen. And the problems that it posed for me was I just wasn't ready. I mean, I was okay in terms of clinical supervision. I knew how to do all that. My clinical experiences had set me up for success there. But what I wasn't ready for was to run payroll, to hire and fire people, to attend all the meetings and committees, to write policy, to edit policy. All the things that I had to do suddenly as a supervisor were things that I had to learn while doing them. And if you, if you put off learning all of those those skills until that point, you have missed the bus. And I certainly missed the bus. So I spent about a year sprinting behind the bus to catch up. And that was exhausting. So my recommendation there is if you have the opportunity at all to get into the behind the scenes work, to to volunteer to be a timekeeper, to volunteer to help with the hiring process, any kind of chance you have to get a behind the scenes look at the administrative functioning of the clinic where you work or the organization where you work, do it, get those experiences. Not only will it pad your resume and improve your reputation around the office, but it will give you a more well-rounded understanding of the business side of practice. Some people might think that as a private practice therapist that you have less of this to worry about, but that is exactly the opposite. If you're in private practice and you work for yourself, you have to do all of these things for yourself. You have to know them well. And if you're alone in a private practice, you don't have anybody around you to tell you if you're doing it wrong or could do it better. So it is very vital that you understand this stuff, that you get a chance to kind of apprentice under the tutelage of whoever does it for a living so that when it's your turn to do it, you're not standing there blinking in the daylight, wondering what the next step needs to be. Okay, so the next thing that I really wish I would have known is that you really have to advocate for yourself in terms of getting advanced training and certifications. This is my own personal philosophy coming out here, but I was always very proud to set aside my own personal needs and instead focus on providing treatment. So what this meant in practical terms was that if an opportunity came up to go to a conference, but I had patients scheduled, I would almost never cancel my patients to go to the conference. So in the end, I passed on a good dozen or so training opportunities that would have definitely accelerated my 
skill accumulation as a young therapist. And I thought I was doing the right thing. I thought I was putting others before myself. I thought I was being gracious and selfless and responsible. And those are all great things to be. But I was also falling behind developmentally. When I finally realized that the time was slipping away from me and that my coworkers had certifications that I did not have, that they had training opportunities that I had passed on that were really enriching their portfolio, and that as a, re- as a result of this, they were getting promoted and had stronger resumes. Well, then I was two or three years behind the ball. It really is a great idea to put yourself first so that you can do better work for the people who come into your clinic. And it feels selfish. It feels sometimes like, like you're wasting time that you could be using to help patients. I guess the best emotion I could put on it is I would have felt guilty early on in my career for taking time away from patients to develop my own self. That's a misplaced guilt. It's not a useful emotional process to have. And I learned the hard way again that I was wasting my own time and that by getting those extra trainings, I was actually making myself more able to do better help for more people later. So invest early in your own development. Nobody else is going to do it for you. No one's going to take you by the hand and force you to find continuing educational opportunities, to find certifications that you can get that might make you more well-rounded as a provider. You have to do that for yourself. And not only is that a good thing to do, it's a necessary thing to do. So some of the other things that I wish I would have known is that everybody who does this work, everyone who works as a therapist, at some point in their career is going to feel like they are a fraud. That they don't actually know what they're doing. That they are only faking it. And that they could be found out for what they are. I thought I was alone in that, but over over the years, I've spoken with many other therapists who've had the same feeling. And obviously this has happened less and less to me as I've grown in maturity in the field, but when I was first starting out, all of it seemed theoretical to me, and then someone would come into my office with a real problem and sit down and expect real help. And I just didn't know what I was doing. And I was kind of guessing at it. It turns out I did know what I was doing. I just wasn't confident enough that the help I was providing was the help they needed. And so I felt like a fraud. I felt like I was deceiving them. I think that's maybe unavoidable, but I just want anyone who hears these words to know that you're not alone in that feeling. Many, if not all of us, have felt it too. I also wish I would have known how little my role is going to account for the change and the growth that my patients make in therapy. It's only partly about the therapist. I think the best example of this is an analog with a personal trainer at the gym. We as therapists point out where people can do different work, where they can improve their technique as it were, But it's the patients themselves who do all of the heavy lifting. Just like a personal trainer at the gym can give you exercises to try and can point out flaws in your technique, you yourself are the one who gets on the treadmill, who gets on the weights, and does all of the heavy lifting and the sweating and the work. 
I have at times lost sight of how little my own role uh, factors in to the change that my patients make. Lost sight of how much work they are doing to improve their own lot. And I wish earlier on in my career I had known to give them the credit that they are due for all the work that they are doing to improve their lives. Also, I wish I had known earlier on in my career how dangerous it is to take yourself too seriously. I've seen a lot of colleagues burn out. And fortunately, I was able to observe them close enough and see what was going on in their lives that I've been able to avoid burnout myself. But I see a very strong trend that the ones who are most likely to burn out are the ones who take themselves overly seriously. The work we do is serious enough. Currently, I work in a PTSD specialty clinic doing trauma work all day long. And a lot of people in my field talk about that being the most difficult work that we do, and I just don't see it that way. Because it's only heavy if we let it be heavy, and if we take ourselves too seriously. Therapy is not a funeral home. It is not a church where we have to be reverent. In session, you must meet your patients where they are, join with them in their experience. But between sessions, there's nothing in the world that says that I have to maintain that same level of gravity and seriousness and heaviness. In fact, I think that runs people ragged, wears people out super rapidly. If I allow that to happen, if I allow myself to stay too serious in between sessions, what I do is I shorten my longevity to the point that I'm just helping fewer people over the years. I'm not helping anybody better. I don't become a better therapist because I hang on to all of the weight and the heaviness of the session that was. I just make myself shorter lived so that there is a net loss for everyone I see. It's an easy trap to fall into to take yourself too seriously, but it is absolutely a trap. The next thing I wish I had known is kind of connected to that, uh, to taking yourself too seriously. It is okay to bring your own personality into the clinic, to be yourself. The more authentic you are about your own personality and the more you bring yourself into your workspace, the more effective you'll be as a therapist, not less. The best example I ever saw of this in my personal career was actually one of my coworkers in Germany, a lovely woman named Lieselot Matthews. She was 100% of the time unapologetic for being who she was. She was a great therapist, but she had her own style and she didn't try to change her style. She knew what worked for her. She knew what she believed in and that's what she did. Her office was absolutely full of plants and Himalayan salt crystals and water, like water elements and fountains. When she very tragically passed away from cancer and we emptied out her office, she had no fewer than 20 different plants. She had a library full of books that she donated to the clinic in her will. And this space in her office was absolutely full of her own personality. She dimmed the lights. And when the safety folks came along and told her that she had to have so many lumens in her room to be safe, she politely nodded and then 
when they left, she turned her lamps back on and turned the lights back off and did things her own way. Now, obviously, I'm not saying that you should get yourself in trouble with your organizational leadership, but she knew when to push back. And she knew that the value of what she did was connected to the authenticity of herself. I learned this lesson by watching her, and I really deeply admired her. Trying to follow suit, I brought a guitar into my office because I play guitar and I find it soothing to be able to pick up a guitar every once in a while, strum a few chords and take a mental break. Well, that guitar became almost a universal source of conversation. People would ask about it. It's a non-threatening object, but it's not expected in a therapist's office. So it became a topic of conversation. People would ask about the guitar and I'd talk about it and say I play a little and ask them if they played. And invariably, if they played guitar, they'd pick it up and start playing themselves during the session and immediately feel more at home, not less. Because I brought an element of myself into the room. And after I saw how great the guitar worked, I started bringing more and more elements of myself into the room, allowing my workspace to more accurately reflect who I am as a person. And this never backfired. I got no bad results from any of this increased expansion or increased acceptance of myself in my workspace. What I really got out of it is I felt much more comfortable at work. I felt more seen, more accepted. I felt more like an authentic person in that clinical environment. In the end, bringing yourself into the workspace helps protect you from your own burnout. And that's a massively important thing to do. Another thing that I um, wish I had known, wish I had known, and I think people tried to tell me this. I just didn't really realize it until it was drummed into my mind by my own experiences with uh, with my clients. The greatest work you will do as a therapist is to help someone else discover their own ability to make themselves healthy. We as therapists don't actually heal anyone. All we do when we are at the top of our game is show people that they have the power to heal themselves. We might act as a demolishing force to tear down the walls that they have built within themselves that prevent them from seeing their own potential. But the potential is and will always be their own contained within themselves. And the true magic of therapy is not about being wise or being smart or insightful. The true magic of therapy is about being able to connect with somebody at such an intensely personal and vulnerable level and help them see in that vulnerable place that they have always had the tools that they need to succeed at whatever they're failing at. That's magical. Incredibly special. It is the honor of the therapist to be present when that discovery is made rather than the duty of the therapist to force that discovery. I could probably go on for a very, very long time about all the things that I wish I would have known when I was a young therapist just starting out. But we're at the 45-minute mark almost. And that's probably enough time.
So, to sum up, there are a ton of things that I wish I had known when I was just starting out. But 15 years into my career, I'm fairly confident that after another 15 years, I'll look back at who I am right now and say the same thing. And I think that's fine. The nature of growth and learning is that it never stops. I wish, looking back at my career 15 or more years ago, that I would have been okay with that. I would have been more accepting of the fact that I didn't know everything, that I didn't need to know everything, that it is okay to still need to learn. And that attitudinal shift would have helped me out a lot. I'm glad that I've gotten to it now, that I'm okay with needing to learn now. And I hope that in the next 15 years, I just become more okay with it, that I become more open to new experience and to new learning. The simple truth remains that the only difference between a beginner and a master of anything is that the master has failed more times than the beginner has even tried. All right. That's all for today, everybody. Thank you very much for listening. I appreciate all your support that you've given me so far. It's been really overwhelming and humbling. And I will try to produce content that is worthy of your expectations. So, thanks again. I am Dan Roberts. This has been One More Think. Let's take care of each other.